Good morning, good morning, Holy Land. How are we doing? Beautiful Sunday morning. Little, We're back to a little bit more regular standard weather. Last week was a a week of some surprises. We had heavy rain, lots of snow, some parts of the country, some parts of the country less snow. And as always, there's lots to talk about. There is just too much to talk about. This is this this is a show that was supposed to happen on Thursday, and uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, things happened on Thursday. We had to push it off. So this morning we start off that we uh, Thursday Wednesday, Wednesday Rush Limbaugh died. Rush Limbaugh died as a Canadian. I had very little, uh, I wasn't so familiar with Rush. I think as a kid, I remember him on, a, on an old episode of The Simpsons, early 90s. That was my, uh, familiarity with Rush. But we didn't get American syndicated radio. So, you know, we were left with, as, as things that are Canadian, very watered down versions of talk radio. I still listened. Because that's what we did, but it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of Canadian uh, talk radio that America was used to. I used to joke that, you know, the American talk radio, American talk radio, they called up and they, they worshipped the host. That I always remembered any trip I ever had to drive, driving down, down south of the border, they would, uh, <clears throat> I would turn on talk radio. Whatever I could, whatever I could listen to, and they would, you know, they were they were listening to him, and they were worship. They were, there was worship. There was worship, and obviously, Rush, Rush set the bar. Rush set the bar when it came to the worship. There was nobody that could be that, that you could compare the devotion that his fans had to him. What was unique about Rush? What was distinct about Rush? What was different about Rush? Lots of different thoughts. I've thought, I've heard. I'm going to read a couple different uh, articles out, just because there's something. There was something about Rush when the president gave him his his uh, the, the the presidential the presidential um, um, freedom freedom uh, the, the greatest civilian award medal of freedom medal of freedom last year at the uh, State of the Union address. He said that for anybody else, this diagnosis would have been would have been an instant death sentence. But we're talking about Rush Limbaugh here, the greatest fighter in the world, and uh, powerful words, powerful words. You know, the president. I know he's not given credit for eloquence, but people learned from Rush how to die with dignity. How to die with dignity. I don't, I don't mean what I'm about to say in any callous manner. But there's a term, you know, there's a term we use, Kalti Yerushalmi, a cold Yerushalmi, cold, you know, Jerusalemite. What about you? the Yerushalmi is cold? Well, you know, look, there are a lot of things that are cold. A lot of things, a lot of things about them that are cold. Uh, but one thing is, is you know, is, is when you see that their relationship with death, their relationship with death, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't have to know from, from 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 tragedy. We shouldn't have to know from tragedy. But you look the way that we are responding 
over the last, we've responded over the last year to the potential, the potential of possibly contracting a virus that has an infinitesimal risk. The risk for most people, again, obviously if you're in a greater risk category, you can, you take more precaution. But the average person out there has such a limited risk. And yet we've sh- changed our entire mode of operation. Every single thing about us has changed virtually over the last year in order to avoid, in order to avoid getting sick, contracting a virus that has very minimal risk. So the idea of, of, of recognizing that death can occur and embracing death potentially, and I don't speak about this as those things that I'm, I've mastered in any way, but at the very least we can re- recognize when somebody does have it, when you can learn this from somebody, when you, you, when you see that what there is to learn, you have to. You can't ignore it. God gave a gift. God gave a gift that we are able to witness things in other people and learn from them. You know, the old line, people learns from his own mistakes, a wise man learns from others. And I joke that we don't learn from our own mistakes. That, that, that there's nothing foolish about learning from your own mistakes. That's one of my jokes. But 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 regardless, you know, when you have an opportunity to learn something from somebody, when you learn, when you learn from anybody. So, you know, there's all sorts of things to learn. And the fact that he, you know, he died with such dignity. He talked about how the first week, the first week he was in denial after he got the diagnosis. But he learned to embrace it and uh, I think that's uh, I think it's uh, that itself is a val- valuable thing. Significantly, I heard this from somebody that uh, Michael Knowles pointed this out that he died at the age of he well I, he died at the age of seventy, which we know has, there's an element of, of shlemus to that. But beyond that, um, in the in the Catholic Catholic doctrine, Ash Wednesday is very ominous, so it doesn't mean anything to us. And obviously, we're not suggesting we're not attributing uh, superpowers to uh, their calendar. I'm not in any way suggesting it, but there could be some sort of relationship. That's all I'm saying. It's not. It's ominous that he died on a very it's a, a very propitious day, very a very a very special day in their calendar. It could mean something as far as his character. In any case, so you know, you look at the way that the um, the left and uh, their relationship with their icons. And the right with, with the right icons, the, our, our, our icons, is an interesting thing. On, on the left, as long as you, you're replaceable, then you don't really matter. You're just, you're just, in essence, you're, you're, you're a pawn. You're, you're just being used in the checkboard. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the problem with Ruth Bader Ginsburg wasn't Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was the fact that that seat meant something. The seat, the icon wasn't, wasn't, wasn't important. It wasn't the icon. If you can be replaced, then you have no purpose, then, 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 then you're just a pawn. With the right, it's not a matter of how accomplished you were and it, it, or how eloquent you are, you were, you are. It's a matter of how, how much heat you took, how much abuse you took. Rush Limbaugh, the reason why it's not about it being replaced or not. The devotion that his that his fans and you have to know, we're talking about his his listener base was 24 million people at a time. I don't know today if it was that still that number. You know the, the the there's a lot more competition out there. 24 million people listening to your daily radio show. 
the amount of abuse that he took. He was the, he was, he was, he was it for years before the, you know, before the people saw just how much, um, of a market there was. He was it. And he took a lot of abuse. And that, and that's what people saw in him. People saw, and, and that's what people see, obviously, you know, where I'm going with this. It's the president. It's the reason why he's so beloved. It's not because of, of everything he accomplished. Now, it happened to be that Rush was a unique character and, and, and his ability to, uh, exp- to to reduce very complex ideas in a manner that that only Rush had, and and you know he wore that he he wore all that ridicule like a badge of honor. It's been noted that pe- people who said that if you can if you think about all the things the negative things that have been said about him since he passed, he would have been very proud. He would have been very proud of all those uh, of all those um, claims of all the, the of all the criticism. It's. Um, it's an interesting point that you know where does a person need need courage? A person needs courage. I don't know who said this. A person needs courage. It was Bill Biddle said this. That courage is only needed in a place where there's fear. Rush didn't have courage because he had no fear. You have no fear. If you have no fear, you don't need any courage. Now, of course, the left. The left, they claim that he was a charlatan, always scaring people into believing things that simply aren't true. I want to get you to go back, you know, do a mental test, a mental challenge. Go back and listen to old episodes of Rush, if you have the time, and if you if you want to, and you can hear thirty years ago just how right he was. Thirty years ago, now so you can see where, where the prophecies came true. Of course, the left will say it never came true, obviously, because they're in denial. But that's the fact. If you see what he predicted, you see the things he's talking about then, there isn't such a difference. Meanwhile, he earned a lot of money. He earned a lot of money over the course of his career. A lot of money. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Billions of dollars, I think, ultimately. He earned a lot of money. And that also made them very, very jealous. They could never do what he did. They could never do what he did. There's an old, there's a line from Dave Ramsey, you know, work and live like no other so you can work and live like no other. I think it's his line, might be paraphrasing a little bit. Work and live like no other so you can work and live like no other. If you work and live in the early stages of your life and you're, you know, you don't have to be cheap, but you have to be sensible about working and living, budgeting, then as a person ages, they can afford to work and live like no other. They, the left resented the fact that Rush, he put in his time. He put in, he sweated, he sweated it out. You know, what, what happened? It was in 1988, I think it was, 1988, that Rush started his radio show. What happened that all of a sudden now he has the ability to start? What changed? So there's something called the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine, uh, what it did was, was the FCC, the FCC used to have something called the Fairness Doctrine. It was a regulation that it, that um, it established two forms of regulation on broadcasters. One was to provide adequate coverage of public issues and to ensure that coverage fairly represented opposing views from Wikipedia. And two, the second rule required broadcasters to provide reply time to issue-oriented citizens. So this this fairness doctrine, which was which which Reagan, which Reagan uh, did away with. In fact, in fact, when 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 the discussion was. Uh, the fellow's name is Fowler. 
he he was he he proposed repealing the fairness doctrine and they would say that if not for the fairness doctrine it's the only thing the fairness doctrine is the only thing thing that protects you Ronald Reagan from the savageness of the three networks every day they would savage Ronald Reagan it's the fairness doctrine and yet Fowler proposed repealing it now i find that statement just shocking right here we have and 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 they didn't and they, they you see with the FCC they didn't have to enforce it so they selectively enforced it so they didn't enforce it even on the three major networks but ABC NBC and CBS they would pay some sort of homage uh yeah 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 you know they would they would they would they would, they would have some sort of of uh of fairness doctrine in within their broadcasts i guess maybe to keep the fcc away but it wasn't they weren't they weren't really held accountable like am radio was and then rush limbaugh comes on the scene and you know it says here from his earliest days on the air limbaugh trafficked in conspiracy theories divisiveness and even viciousness he had a term called feminazis Prior to 1987, people using much less controversial verbiage had been taken off the air as obvious violations of the Fairness Doctrine. So now all of a sudden, they repeal this, and despite other attempts, it, never, it, was, never, it was never put back in the book, on the books. Never. So they repeal this, and now all of a sudden, Rush has an opportunity. He has an opportunity. He's not forced. He's not forced to present the other side. So th- 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 there was a monopoly. If you can imagine what this means, it, there was no... There was no AM radio, there was no conservative talk, there was no conservative voice out there. The left had a complete monopoly. Now, they may not have been as radical in those days, potentially, you could say, and they may not have, there, there may be all sorts of things that were different, but they still, as it says, they savaged Reagan. The three networks, despite their, despite their monopoly, did, 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 did Rush Limbaugh's opinions were they not represented in the people? He was a lone person. Nobody else felt that way. Everybody else felt. Why should the mainstream media not be representing the people? How is it possible that as soon as Rush Limbaugh comes on the scene, all of a sudden now, there's there are tens of millions of people who now get a voice. Tens of millions of people who now get a voice. Why weren't they represented before? How is it that, that mainstream isn't supposed to be representing everybody? Or at the very least, the bulk of people. How can it be? You know what elections were like in those days? Ronald Reagan, despite despite being savaged, Ronald Reagan took 49 seats in 1984. 49 seats. 49 seats, despite being savaged every day. So, there was something unique that Rush brought. Something unique that Rush brought to the, to the, to the table. And the left hated him for it. They hated him for it. They could never do it. See this line here. From his earliest days on the air, Limbaugh trafficked in conspiracy theories, divisiveness, and even viciousness. Which party is it who has spokespeople on mainstream media day and night calling everybody racists, calling people fascists, you, you name it? Who is it? How come he's the one who's labeled and we're going to get to some of the hate, hatred that was. We're not going to spend too much time on it. This is we have, you know, we have to do some. We have to do some of it. But we, we're, we're going to get to it. But I want to read a couple things first, just to give a glimpse as to exactly who Rush was. 
This is coming, I'll read this one first. It's coming from Andrew Breitbart. We mentioned Andrew Breitbart. Andrew Breitbart said famously that politics is downstream from culture. Culture is upstream from politics. You have to understand how each one, each one works in order to know how to reclaim. You have to know how, you have to know, you have to know how, how culture works in order to reclaim politics. <clears throat> the following is a short excerpt from Andrew Breitbart's 2011 memoir, Righteous Indignation. Excuse me while I save the world. Discussing how Rush Limbaugh inspired his embrace of conservative principles and American patriotism. One day I asked my future father-in-law, Orson Bean, why he had Rush Limbaugh's book, The Way Things Ought to Be, on his shelf. I asked him, why would you have a book by this guy? And Orson said, have you ever listened to him? I said, yes, of course, even though I never had. I was convinced to the core of my, of my being that Rush Limbaugh was a Nazi, anti-black, anti-Jewish, and anti-all things decent. Without berating me for dis- disagreeing with him, Orson simply suggested that I listen to him again. This is where my rendezvous with destiny begins. I turned on KFI 640 AM to listen to Evil Personified from 9 AM to noon. Indeed, my goal was to derive pleasure from the degree of evil I found in Rush Limbaugh. I was looking forward to a jovial discussion with Orson to confirm how right I was. One hour turned into three, one listening session into a week's worth, and next thing I knew, I was starting to doubt my pre-programmed self. I was still a Democrat. I was still a liberal. But after listening for months while putting thousands of miles on my car, I couldn't believe that I was that I once thought this man was a Nazi, a Nazi, or anything else. While I couldn't yet accept the premise that he was speaking my language, I marveled at how he could take a breaking news story and offer an entertaining and clear analysis that was like nothing I had ever seen on television, especially the Sunday morning shows, which had been my previous one-stop shop for political opinions. Most important, though Limbaugh, like the professor I always wanted, but never had the privilege to study under, created a vivid mental picture of the architecture of a world that I resided in, but couldn't see properly. The Democrat media complex, embedded in Limbaugh's analysis of politics, was always a tandem discussion on the media. Each segment relentlessly pointed to collusion between the media and the Democratic Party. If the Clarence Thomas hearing showed me that something was wrong, then in the ensuing years of listening to Limbaugh and Dennis Prager, who at the time was also undergoing a political transformation from the Democratic to the Republican Party, explained to me with eerie precision what exactly was wrong. I swallowed hard and conceded to Orson that he was right. So that was that was Andrew Breitbart. That was Andrew Breitbart uh, and him describing how integral he was to his political evolution. And the next is from Mark Stein. Mark Stein filled in for Rush many times. He filled in for Rush many times. And he was supposed to do the show last Wednesday. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but I'm going to try and uh, do it justice. He's, he, Mark Stein is a very articulate individual. He's a, he's, he's a, um, an orator. Rush died this morning after a year-long struggle with lung cancer. I was scheduled to guest host today's show. Instead, as you can hear, his beloved Catherine will be introducing a special program put together by EIB. Uh, EIB. You know, Rush was deaf. He was deaf. Okay? That didn't stop him. He was deaf. Could you imagine a radio host being deaf? He had lost almost all his hearing. 
it's by some point today he I mean, he had cochlear ear implants one, at one point in one year then put into both ears but he was deaf didn't stop him didn't stop him it's remarkable you think how is a person who's deaf going to be a a radio host perseverance whether or not he did it for everybody else or he did it for himself that's a different conversation you know when you when you know that people are relying on you you have extra, extra, extra extra strength. It's a hard thing to do, compressing a glorious third of a century into three hours. But Snurdly, who was black, it was his like main uh, Craig, Mike, Ali, and everyone else I've worked with there for so many years will do their best. Usually in this line of work, if you're lucky, you get a moment, a year or two when you're the in thing, and you hope to hold enough of that moment as it slowly fades away to keep you going till retirement. Rush did something unprecedented in the history of TV and radio. Commercial broadcasting began in the United States in 1920. The Rush Limbaugh show came along two-thirds of a century later, became the number one program very quickly, and has stayed at the top all the way to today for a third of the entire history of the medium. And throughout all those decades, Rush and his shows stayed exactly the same, a forensic breakdown of the day's news, punctuated by musical parodies, satirical sketches, and Rush's own optimism and good humor. Even though this last year was terrible, even even though this last terrible, even through this last terrible year, the comedy is what his many enemies and half his own side missed. Rushed, Rush took politics seriously, but not solemnly. In the years of the war on terror, in the early years of the war on terror, terror. He introduced an Afghan version of himself with talent on loan from Allah. Rush used to say, Rush used to say that he has talent on loan from God. Talent on loan from God. So, so he made a parody, a talent on loan from Allah, and sold Club Gitmo merchandise for those seeking a tropical retreat from jihad. When Brokeback Mountain was in the news, the show ran trailers for Return of the Saddle Sore Canyon. It's John, John McCain and Lindsey Graham as you've always wanted to see them, which in my case at least is true. I know precisely when I first heard Rush. It was not long after he started the show and not long after I bought my pad in New Hampshire. I was driving some visitors from London through the North Main Woods towards New Brunswick in that dead zone where the only thing that comes in is the soft and easy station on 94.9 FM from the top of Mount Washington. And then that died. There was And there was nothing. And I forgot to switch it off so it was automatically scanning up and around the dial as we chit-chatted in the car. And then suddenly it found some guy. And there he was talking about the arts and croissants crowd. Moving into your town and reading out press releases from NOW, the National Association of Women, whom he called the Nags at National Association of Gals. That's cute, no? And playing Andy Williams' version of Born Free, punctuated by gunfire to accompany any environmental story. And in my car... The conversation ceased. My friends were what you might call slightly skeptical lefties. So they disagreed with what Rush said on the issues, but they were wrapped by the way he said it because they had never heard anybody say it like that before. And it was a unique combination, absolutely piercing philosophical clarity and a grand rollicking present presentational style honed through all the lean years of minor market disc jockeying. First, he perfected the style. Then he applied it to the content. 
When Clinton was elected, Rush opened his show for years with America Held Hostage Day 39, Day 73, Day 124. And when Newt's Republicans won the 1994 midterms, he started with James Brown singing, I feel good. One man doing what he wanted to do saved an entire medium, AM radio, and turned all its old rules upside down. Traditionally, Morning Drive is your big audience, and everything tapers off from there. Rush figured that everyone needs a local guy at that time, with traffic and weather updates, and that the opportunity to build a national show lay in the hitherto... And the opportunity to build a national show lay in the hitherto somnolent slot of... Somnolent slots, excuse me, of noon to three Eastern, or nine to twelve Pacific. And within a couple of years, hundreds of stations were building the entire schedule around the midday guy. In the scheme of things, I'm not sure how many of those stations will be able to keep that going without him. Throughout the, his entire time on air, there were genius GOP consultants who, in reaction to any electoral setbacks, would insist that what the GOP needed to do was come up with a way to ditch Limbaugh. As I said on air many years ago, really? For almost a third of a century, Russia's audience was over half the total Republican vote. How many do all you genius Republican reformers bring to the table? I've recounted previously the first time I was asked to guest host back in 2006 when I appeared to be down in Australia and the prime minister, John Howard, asked me to do, asked me to some, to ask me to some or other event a day or two hence. And I politely declined, saying I had to get back to America to host the Rush Limbaugh show. I hear that's a pretty big big show, said the PM. Yes, yeah, I replied, 25 to 30 million listeners. Struth, said Mr. Howard, Rush has more listeners than we have Australians. Indeed, and all these GOP clever clogs never explain once you throw Rush and his millions overboard, what's going to replace them? Powerful politicians and longtime fans were often surprised upon meeting him to find a man who was quite private and indeed shy because like many radio guys, he had no desire to have a public persona other than at the microphone. Unlike so many others in the business, Rush was hugely generous and totally secure. Unlike other shows of left and right, where the staff comes and go every six weeks, everyone at the EIB network has been there 15, 20, 30 years. That includes, in a very prefer- per- peripheral way, yours truly. When I first started guest hosting, I found it odd that on the rare occasions Rush mentioned the subs. It would be to put them, it would be to put them down. Because, I mean, who would do that? But Rush is the least insecure star on the planet. And I came to see that what he was actually teaching The neophytes, a very important lesson. You guys need to be completely secure too because it's the only way to survive in this wretched media. I came to appreciate that being put down by Rush was actually a far greater compliment than being than him doing some boilerplate, hey, he's a great guy shtick. And one of the saddest days of my 15 years with EIB was when I heard Rush a few months back, expressing genuine, sincere gratitude for something I'd said about him a few days earlier. And as I pleaded on air, I just wanted the old rush back, scoffing at his guest's hosts, 
so we'd all so we'd know all was well in the world. He continues, he continues, but what's the point? To modify Rush's tagline, talent returned to God. That's how he ends it off. So that is that is Rush Limbaugh. That is what he represented. And it's Rush who is is to thank for every alternative media supply out there. He's the first. He was the pioneer. Now let's see just a little bit how the left is treating him. We'll read a few 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 a few things here. It's coming from the Times of Israel, but it's reprinted from AP. Rush Limbaugh, the talk host, talk radio host who ripped into liberals and laid waste to political correctness with a merry brand of malice, made him one of the most powerful voices in the American right, and foretold the rise of Donald Trump, died Wednesday. He was 70. Limbaugh, an outspoken lover of cigars, had been diagnosed with lung cancer. His death was announced on his website. Now, just pause. Do we understand what they just did there? They joined the idea that he was that he died from cigars with his with that he, that he was a, a cigar smoker and a cigarette smoker as he was with his death. Well, you see, had you been more responsible, Rush, you maybe you wouldn't have died. Maybe, maybe, but maybe that's a choice. Maybe that's a choice that Rush that Rush that Rush made. He wasn't concerned about dying younger than he could have, earlier than he could have, premature as they'd say, and enjoying himself a little bit more. <laughs> but they don't want that personal liberty. Let's understand that. In, this, in that one opening line, basically, an outspoken lover of cigars, unflinchingly conservative, wildly partisan, bombastically self-promoting, and larger than life. Limbaugh galvanized listeners for more than 30 years with his talent for vituperation and sarcasm. Now, wildly partisan. He he didn't claim otherwise. Bombastically self-promoting and larger than life. On a public persona, yes. You know, it's like the pre- the president when he was asked, it was his, his first his first um rate um interview that he I think public interview that since 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 uh, the inauguration the faux inauguration. He was, uh, he came on the radio to talk about Rush, uh, radio, he came on to Fox to talk about Rush, and he said, he said that uh, he liked him from the very beginning. I mean, Rush, Rush supported the president from the very beginning. And he was, they were pushing him, they were pushing him, you know, well, why did he's, you know, why, why did the president support Rush so much? And he said, well, what can I say? I like people who like me. You know, there was a there's a certain honesty of a, a, a certain honesty about that, but and we're not going to get into this today because I actually before he had before he died, you know, even though he was he was sick, I actually had prepared um, uh, a segment uh, about Rush. So uh, I'm gonna I'm, it's still on the back burner. We're not gonna we're not gonna do it today, but I just want to uh, continue this for a moment. So you see, you see. So you see, and actually there's a similarity between Russia and the president. I have a clip to play, but there's a similarity between Russia and the president as far as a public persona versus a private persona. But they're only focusing on the private pers- on the public persona here. There's lots to say about his public private persona, but they're not interested. He called himself an entertainer, but his rants during his three-hour weekday show broadcast on nearly 600 U.S. stations shaped the national political conversation. 
swaying ordinary Republicans and the direction of the party. He called himself an entertainer. He wasn't an entertainer. What wasn't he? What, what about him? Was an entertainer? I mean, if I could tell you, I'm not, I, I don't have it, but the vitriol, the hatred, the, the, the left has no ability to look at itself and 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 and, and smile. There's nothing humorous. I, I sent somebody a, a, a clip, uh, you know, something humorous, a political, some, you know, political uh, clip. It was funny to a leftist, and he was like, "I see nothing funny about this." Okay, fine, no problem. <laughs> you know, like they, they, there's nothing humorous. Absolutely, never anything humorous about 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 uh, about it. You know, when 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 Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, the right didn't rejoice. Didn't have parades. I mean, if you could imagine how the left has responded to him, it it it, it should shock us. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Unfortunately, it doesn't. You know, the that's that's the that's the sad reality. That is a sad reality. And they go through all sorts of things, anything that they can. You know, anything that they can. After people are after people pass, we find nice things to say at the very least. But no. They use every opportunity. They have several pages devoted to just how evil, just how evil he was. Evil. Well, talent, talent on loan from God, as he would say. It's uh, we salute him. We salute Rush. In any case, to, moving on, there was an interview, an interview with. Um, an interview with David Shonen and Alan Dershowitz. Very interesting interview. Very interesting interview. A lot of uh, a lot of different points made. I'm not going to get to all of them now. I'm not going to get to all of them now. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to br- bridge this. I'm going to bridge this uh, with something that. Listen to Alan Dershowitz here talking about First Amendment. You know, we want to understand what how important the First Amendment is, right? That Al- Rush Limbaugh was one side of the argument. He's not saying you can't hear the other side. He's simply saying, he's simply saying, well, don't don't silence me. Listen to what Dershowitz says. It's, very, it's brilliant. That because a low-level official can be fired for making racist statements, therefore the president can be fired. Well, you don't fire the president. This is not the British parliamentary system where you can fire the prime minister based simply on a vote of no confidence. The framers eliminated maladministration as a ground specifically for impeachment and introduced these four elements, treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. That's not firing somebody. And so the idea that a president loses his First Amendment rights, first of all, it's not only the president has the First Amendment right, it's everybody who wants to listen to the president. I have a First Amendment right to hear what the president has to say. And you can't deny me my hearing right under the First Amendment, which is just as important as his speaking right. And so the First Amendment is kind of interactional. He speaks, I listen. I speak, he listens. That's what is in the nature of conversations. I have an article. Have you, heard, have you ever heard something like that? Have you ever heard something like that? That's, that, that the First Amendment is interactional? You speak, I listen, that we both have a First Amendment, right? It's a very powerful idea. I never heard it put like that. 
that First Amendment isn't just on the speaker. It's on the listener. It's on the listener. And what is Alan? Alan goes on to say, he goes on to say that, you know, what they're doing right now is they're eliminating the voice of 70, he puts it at 70 million, 75 million Americans. And that's going to have terrible effect on the profession. It's going to have, listen to how he puts it. This is again him talking to David Schoen, the president's attorney. I have an article that I'm writing now about the Harvard uh, um, uh, uh, petition uh, and the idea that students at Harvard will not be able to hear what 70 million Americans think. Those arguments are no longer allowed on a university campus. I don't agree with those arguments. I, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a Trump supporter politically, but I want to hear what 70 million Americans think. If I'm going to go out and practice law, I can't be ready to practice when I only heard what some Americans think and what other Americans don't think. My jurors will consist of Trump supporters. My judges will consist of judges appointed by Trump. How can law schools prevent that point of view from being heard on a campus? It's shocking, and now they want to prevent your point of view from being heard. So, it's shocking. How can they prevent it? How can they prevent people from hearing different points of view? They've been trying. They've been trying for many, many years. I have many clips here. I'm not going to play them all today. I'm not going to play them all today. I'm going to save them because we're going to get into this another point, at another point, maybe tomorrow, next day, we'll have to see. But um, I want to sh- I want to share one point that he from that conversation because it's very interesting. Um, so David Schoen, he wore his, he he he'd wear his kippa in court, but he didn't wear it in front of a jury. Yeah, he talks about why because he was he felt that it could compromise his clients. He was and he could be he could become a liability. One time he was representing somebody shortly after the Crown Heights, you know what what happened in Crown Heights in the early 90s, and one of the jurors of a case said, "Don't worry about whether guilt, the person was guilty or innocent. You know it's the Jews that bring the drugs into the community, so we'll convict convict anyways." So he didn't he didn't want to he doesn't wear his kippa in 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 present in 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 in, in front of juries from that from that point on. But he's always mindful of God's presence, which to him is what the keeper represents. So, you know, he was talking to Dershowitz about the, about how uh, he would put his hand, or his, his arm or his hand over his head and he was drinking or making a bracha. And, and he said, yeah, you know, it's, it was more of just a uh, habit. You know, you put your, you know, you, you put your hand over your head because, uh, you know, you show that God's presence is above you. And, um, and which happened to be a different reason than Dershowitz gave for wearing the cape at that point, but it's fine. It's, that's irrelevant. It was just interesting. And, and then he said that Schumer came over to him and he said, you know what my name is? And he said, uh, he, he said he didn't, but he guessed Schumer. And he said, that's right. And I explained to the senators why you covered your head while drinking. What a piece of, you know what? What a Chuck Schumer presenting himself as though he's some sort of, of, his savior is some sort of representation of Jews. Man, he's sold everything Jewish out. But okay, it was an interesting story that he told over. And I don't have the time to play all the clips, unfortunately. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna tell you a little about them. Then Alan Dershowitz is an interesting one. I have one more clip to play, but I'm gonna tell the stories over as they are. Alan tells him about the story about when he was clerking for the at the Supreme Court for Justice Goldberg, Arthur Goldberg, who was Supreme Court for three years in the '60s. Interesting, he went from that post as a Supreme Court justice 
to Associate Justice to uh, the um, the um, UN. He became the ambassador to the UN for, uh, under LBJ, I think. So. So it's just interesting, you know, it's, it's very different. Today, you know, our, our Supreme Court justices, they stay on until they die. Yeah, they, they, they die in, in, in court, uh, on the court. And that's unfortunately, it's part of the, how polarized things are, but it wasn't always like that. In any case, he was just, he was clerking for Justice Arthur Goldberg in the early 60s. And um, he got us a note from Goldberg that the Chief Justice wants to know whether Jewish law requires a woman to wear a hat in the courtroom because they are prohibited from wearing a hat in the courtroom by law. So Dershowitz wrote the responsa, he jokes, he said he wrote the responsa that a married woman is required to have her head covered. And Justice Goldberg, it was, it was, it was, um, <clears throat> it was, he said that Justice Goldberg ultimately told her that um, it was Mal- 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 Malvina Halberstam, who's fr- who's in Cardozo, uh, Cardozo. So she she's a she's she she Alan called her a brilliant legal mind. In any case, she's she's retired, but I think I think she's still in Cardozo. Anyway, so, so, she, so he said Justice Goldberg ultimately told her that she should feel comfortable to have her head covered, but next time to wear something more discreet, not that tall leopard skin on her head. And I was thinking, and I was thinking, I was listening to the story. You know, Justice Goldberg, this brilliant legal mind, whatever this 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 this. this Associate Justice on the Supreme Court, and and the Torah poverty, as uh, Moshe Yes puts it, the Jewish poverty, the the ignorance that he has, he doesn't even know that a woman is supposed to co- a married woman is supposed to cover her hair. He doesn't even know that, so he has to ask Alan Dershowitz, who growing up Avi Dershowitz, he knew exactly, he knew that 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 halacha, so he wrote it out for for um, he wrote out the response as he puts it. That was cute. Uh, anyway, so then, then he discuss, then he, then he mentions, um, here, and we will play this last clip here. Ah, there, uh, so he, he confronts him on Shabbos, on the fact that he didn't, that he didn't, um, that he didn't offer the final remarks. Oh, but you know, before that, before that, I want to, I want to play this one clip here where he compared the two. As I said that there was a comparison between the president and 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 Rush. He asked him what it was like to work for the president. So so let's just hear that as well, and then we'll uh, we'll hear the one about Shabbos because it's an interesting point. Wasn't the issue? So so tell me what it was like. Give us just a little bit of a personal sense of what it was like. I know you spoke to uh, former President Trump two or three or four times a day. Did he try to tell you what to say? What kind of a client was he? I know. He was a terrific client. You know, all I knew about him beforehand was this public persona that I had heard and read about. He was as gracious as any client I have ever had in every conversation I had with him. Nothing but supportive, never tried to force any agenda. And that story about the that he was trying to force election fraud agenda on the South Carolina lawyers simply wasn't true. They were a fine group of folks, a nice, nice guys, good lawyers. But that wasn't uh, what the falling out was about. Um, no, he was a terrific client. Every time I spoke to him, he just built me up, built up my confidence. And he said to me, I chose you to be lead counsel in this case for a reason. You have to be assertive, though, with the team and that sort of thing. That's not my personality. So um, I, I wasn't I, I may have let him down in that regard a bit in terms of organizing things. But I tried to do my best in my presentation that I possibly could for him as the client. And uh, and I thought for the senators there, the Republican senators needed some backing up. And so, the first thing there he said was that the president, of course, 
was 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 very gracious and 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 and, and generous. He said he built me up. Remember what we said? Remember when we played that clip of the president uh, speaking to the supporters on on the day where the uh, capital mostly peaceful protest, protest occurred, and he said he, we said that he, he was talking as though he was a parent. He was talking because that's 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 how the president acts. That's how he deals with people. He was building him up. So there you hear David, even David Schoen is saying that. I thought that was a, an interesting point. But I'm going to play now the clip where he talks to him about about uh, the fact that he didn't he didn't argue the final final argument on on Shabbos. That you know we know, we know that the, the final vote occurred on Shabbos, and he didn't argue. He didn't argue for him. And whether or not that was, you know, where that decision came from and whether or not it was the right decision, you know, the, the Chazal tell us, sages say that there's the idea that a person can acquire his his entire eternity in the next world in one moment. And of course, the Gemara cites a certain specific example. But I happen to believe that uh, this idea... Uh, is very is 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 uh, applicable to this case as well. Whenever somebody makes a, a kiddush Hashem, and I think it's the kiddush Hashem personally, I think I, I think it is. Whenever somebody makes a kiddush Hashem, so a public sanctification of God's name, and that is a uh, a very special thing. So let's listen to how David Schoen talks about this decision, and then we'll hear maybe what Alan how Alan's response. Yeah. Uh, so just one final question on this, and then we'll get back to the merits. And that is, <clears throat> you, uh, we missed you on Friday late afternoon and Saturday. Uh, your absence was very much noted. And some people raised questions about why couldn't you have stayed near the Capitol, walked to the Capitol, not used pen or pencil, and simply appeared and made your brilliant argument on Friday night or Saturday. Yeah, I, I'm very sorry that I missed the question and answer period because there were some real opportunities for those questions that I, I think were missed. But um, And I, I would have loved to have given the closing argument, and the president made clear he wanted me to have that kind of role in the case. I, I weighed all of those things, and I could have maybe put aside the microphone and that sort of thing. But I thought that the the what it would have reflected was that I was still treating it as if it were another workday. And I thought that for those people who subscribe to that kind of religious observance, it was an important statement to make to not, especially in the spirit of the Sabbath, uh, to not just show up like it was a regular day. And I have to say that since since that happened, I've heard from people all around the world that it's made it, they feel it's made their job a little bit easier. People, somebody wrote me works at Goldman Sachs said, you know, I've always wrestled what to do, what to do about Shabbos and so on. I feel more comfortable now that someone in a setting like this, the impeachment of the trial of the president of the United States, made that decision and stood firm on it. So I'm glad I made that decision. On the other hand, I missed the opportunity Look, of a lifetime, you know, to give a closing argument there. But. Well, that is a, a very, very, very special thing. Is it not? That idea that he he inspired other people? He inspired other people. Um, you know, of course, it reminds us of Sandy Koufax, which is exactly how Alan responded. Sandy Koufax, who did not <clears throat> did not pitch in the first game of the World Series, and uh, and I think I think that that was a 
tremendous Kiddush Hashem. I think I gave a lot of confidence to a lot of people for many generations that they uh, that they could that they could um, proudly proudly honor the Shabbos and not feel that they need to compromise. I want to play that last clip from Alan Dershowitz, and I'm really I'm going to tell another story. Gonna go down in history as the Sandy Koufax <laughs> of the legal profession. I grew up with Sandy Koufax. He lived uh, f- just down the block from me. His father was a lawyer, Irving Koufax, and Sandy, of course, wouldn't pitch in Game One of the World Series, and in fact, and had Don Drysdale pitch instead of him. Not a bad choice, um, but he'll always be remembered more for what he didn't do than for what he did do, and you'll be remembered both for what you did do. And what you didn't do, you're brilliant. So there you go. So he tells him the Sandy Koufax, the Sandy Koufax of, uh, of the legal profession. Yeah, 100%. I think, uh, I mean, unfortunately, Alan does mention the fact that he, he missed him, that he was, he was there, but, uh, okay, you know, yeah, yeah. You can only win so many, but right? You gotta work on them. You gotta work, you gotta work, gotta work on them all, but nonetheless, I think it's, um, uh, it was something to, to note. It reminded me, though, of something I read many a number of years ago, where Yehuda Avner, who wrote the book called The Prime Ministers, he uh, served in many under, under four different prime ministers, and there's a conversation between him and Jewish Action in the book review, the book review on Jewish Action of the, the prime ministers, and he talks about how Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who was the chief chaplain to the IDF. Uh, when he first entered the foreign ministry, he was his, um, he was, uh, he was his paisik. He was the go-to on halachic shilas that he had. And he explained that, um, what's called the famous Clausewitz law, which states that war is an extension of diplomacy by other means. In other words, successful diplomacy can prevent war and therefore falls into the category of pikuach nefesh and saving lives. This being so, when potentially threatening circumstances required me to break Shabbat, Rabbi Goran ruled that I was obligated to do so even in situations in which there appeared to be no immediate and present danger. And then they go into the technicality, exactly how you do break Shabbos if you need to. Okay, then there's a question as follows. Were there times when your adherence to religious principles got you into hot water? Yes, there were. I recall an occasion in 1975 when U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was engaged in shuttle diplomacy negotiating with Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat in an attempt to bring about an interim agreement in Sinai. The negotiations broke down because Rabin was not satisfied with proposals which impinged on Israel's security. Kissinger went off in a huff, readying to place the failure of his mission on Israel. This showdown occurred just before Shabbat. And Rabin asked me to immediately prepare our case for worldwide broadcast before Kissinger had a chance to brief the pressman accompanying him on his flight back to Washington. A battle for public opinion was on, not least to win over Congress and the American public at large to accept our version of things. And I was the only one on the premier's staff who was not only familiar with all the facts, but also had the language competence to promptly make our case. But I told Rabin that Shabbat was upon us, and what he was asking me to do was not a matter 
of vital policy, but of hasbara, public diplomacy or advocacy. And for that, I was not willing to violate Shabbat. Well, do I remember the look of contempt on his face as I left? The next day, Shabbat afternoon, after davening mincha at the Grushel in the neighborhood of Shari Chesed, I happened upon Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Arbach. He knew what I was engaged in. And he asked me in Yiddish what was new. I told him that I had, I told him what had happened. And he said to me in Hebrew, are you sure you had all the information to make the right decision? I took this to mean that I might not have made the right decision after all and immediately started walking, started to walk back to the prime minister's office. When I got there, it was already Motzei Shabbat. Rabin was in the midst of an emergency cabinet session. And as I walked in, he spat at me. Now you come. It's too late. And he showed me the briefing that Kissinger had given the journalists accompanying him on his flight back to Washington, in which he placed all the blame for the crisis on Israel's shoulders. This had the most serious consequences. President Gerald Ford declared a reassessment of the whole Israeli-U.S. relationship, beginning with a partial arms embargo. To this day, I do not know if I did the right thing, and whether following Rabin's instructions would have made a difference or not. And I'm not suggesting that... um, Yehuda Avner did the right thing, didn't do the right thing. I'm not getting into that. Nothing. It's it's over in history. But notice, notice Rabin's response to Yehuda Avner keeping Shabbos and the president's response to David Schoen keeping Shabbos. That's the point. That's the point. The president hired him for this explicit reason and he didn't do what the president wanted the president did not lash out the president did not spit on him he didn't make him feel whatever he didn't say you know what i'm not paying you for whatever whatever you'd expect from he he explained you know he was he was he was gracious he was Better than anybody he's ever, he's, he's, you know, definitely not, he's, he was as good as anybody he's ever, uh, represented, as David Schoen said. And then you look at Yitzhak Rabin's response when, when Yehuda Avner didn't do what he was, what he asked of him and how, and how he responded. That's all. That's my only point. And of course, you can get into the discussion as to exactly, well, obviously, Rabin is advocating on behalf of the entire Jewish people. You know, there's no end to what one can say. But there is a point made in how they responded. In any case, there's so much to talk about, unfortunately, but that has been our show today. I am your host, Ellie Shapiro, and we look forward to being with you again, please God, tomorrow. Have a great day.